0: coronavirus is more than just the disease of the moment. It could affect global supply chains for months. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, editor-in-chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. The coronavirus has already had a severe impact on production and commerce in China. Given the nature of global supply chains, however, the effects can't be contained within that country's borders. We're seeing shortages of product and components worldwide caused by factory shutdowns and wide-scale disruptions of supply. But what are the potential long-term implications of this fast-spreading disease? Today, we'll get answers from my guest, Brian Alster, General Manager of Third Party Risk and Compliance Solutions with Dunn and Bradstreet. He returns to the podcast to discuss the findings of D&B's new report on the effects of coronavirus on global supply chains and the economy. We'll talk about whether companies learned any lessons from the SARS outbreak in 2003 and why this one could have far greater impact over the coming months, even if it's quickly brought under control. So here is my conversation with Brian Alster. Brian Alster, welcome back
1: to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I appreciate
0: it. This time around, we're going to be talking about a new report from Dun & Bradstreet on the impact of the coronavirus on global supply chains and the economy. I want to start by asking you what the report tells us about the short-term impacts of the coronavirus on the supply chain.
1: I think the first thing that comes out when we were developing the report was just how interconnected businesses are globally now. Interdependency has been growing, and it's been well-documented. But we've never seen an event like this that could impact supply chains for months to come. So the first thing that I think comes out in the short term is just how interdependent businesses are. Dun & Bradstreet's supply chain data tells us that 50,000 companies worldwide have tier one or direct suppliers in the impacted region of China. What's more interesting though is as you start to look further down the supply chain, second tier suppliers Grow that number to 5 million globally that have impacted suppliers in that impacted region of China.
0: Wow, that is a huge number. Work has already begun on a vaccine. We can expect that maybe in months to come there will be some kind of a vaccine. And the immediate impact of the coronavirus outbreak will be lessened. However, there are long-term implications to this as well. What are some of those?
1: I think what we've got now is a better understanding of where the direct impacts are. So you've seen and heard a lot of companies coming forward, and those companies that are coming forward are in industries that we're starting to see in done in Bradstreet's data as well. So for example, automotive, electronics, you're seeing the services industry led by tourism, retail, Manufacturing. The implications at that point and understanding where this is headed are largely hinging on how long it'll take for the virus to be contained. Now, the good news, the silver lining so far is that the virus has only become self-contained within China itself. We have not seen the virus have any kind of material outbreaks in any other countries. And for that, I think the short-term impact is minimal to global GDP.
0: There have been some cases, have there not, in Europe and in the United States. It's not not zero. There have
1: been. No, but it's not self-containing where the virus is starting to spread at the numbers we're seeing in China. So no Mm -hmm. one country has more than a few dozen cases, and the mortality rate on those cases is really low. And so a lot of times what we're seeing is a barometer to typical seasonal flu, but also the SARS outbreak. Dun & Bradstreet has done some economic modeling to understand the impact or the potential impact of the coronavirus in comparison to SARS 17 years ago.
0: That's interesting. What differences have you found?
1: I think the first point to understand is it's a good comparison point, but there do have to be some changes to the assumptions. First and foremost, in 2003, when the SARS outbreak occurred, China made up about 2% of global GDP. If you flash forward to 2020, China makes up 20% of global GDP and is now one of the top economies in the world. And when you start to look at varying scenarios, in any scenario, whether the virus is contained in the next 100 days or the virus doesn't have containment in 2020 at all, there's going to be an impact to China's GDP growth. I think that point is clear. And what we're seeing, though, is in the short term, if the coronavirus is indeed contained over the course of, call it by the end of the second quarter, you are going to see very minimal impact on global GDP. We do expect to see maybe two, 300 basis points of impact to China's growth, which will make it the slowest growing year in China's maybe last 30 years. So it definitely is going to have an impact on China. But mm-hmm. to the global economy, you're not going to see a significant impact. You will start to see an impact if this virus is not contained by the end of the fourth quarter.
0: wondering about things like the prices of raw materials, because we're hearing about as production lines shut down for lack of components and the like and worrying about the virus. Raw material production continues and stocks are building up all over the world, causing a plunge in the price of raw materials, I guess, and also a glut of inventory. That's going to take some time to work off and rectify itself, is it not? It is.
1: Donny Bradstreet has been monitoring some of these macroeconomic repercussions. So, for instance, when we look at some of the commodity prices, you mentioned copper, oil aluminum, you are seeing some declines because the demand is no longer there because of the disruptions of supply chains. You're also seeing companies having to react to some of these disruptions and some are doing it better than others. I think what is interesting is the lessons we're learning during this time because Gun Bradstreet has been asked by our clients over the course of the last two years on a couple of different occasions to help understand the impacts of disruptions like this. But when you looked at some of the disruptions, they were things like the tariffs, and how should we react to tariffs, and do we truly understand where our businesses are and where our suppliers are located, and what could the impact of tariffs have on the cost of us doing business with our suppliers? But again, they were short-term, quick analyses to help understand one impacted variable— Another one case that we were looking at is there were a number of natural disasters, whether they were wildfires, whether they were hurricanes, that disrupted supply chains for days, maybe a week or two. This coronavirus has the opportunity to impact supply chains for months. And because of that, we're really talking to clients now about shifting to really focusing on three core facets of how to improve reaction time to disruptions. The first and foremost, they have to ensure that they have a very strong risk-based assessment approach for onboarding and continuously monitoring suppliers. I think companies are doing a pretty good job now of onboarding, but sometimes the monitoring to understand if that risk profile changes because of things like an outbreak from a health perspective, like we're dealing with now, or a natural disaster, or a change in geopolitical environment. And these are the types of things that companies have to understand about their supply base and be able to react quickly to it. You're never going to be able to eliminate the disruptions, but you can definitely be able to react to them better. The second component of that is if you have a strong risk-based assessment process in place, the second aspect is Don't just get under the covers and understand your core tier one suppliers, but understand, especially for your critical components of your supply chain, what are the second tier, third tier suppliers that could create disruptions, And what are you doing to better understand the risks associated with those suppliers? Mm -hmm. And then the third is, are we creating alternatives for the potential disruptions? And what I mean here is during good times, we should be proactively seeking out alternative suppliers in diverse regions of the world that can ensure we have consistent quality, consistent pricing, consistent, stable economic environment, and that the product is as good quality as you're seeing today. And those types of things you can't do in a day, a week, or even a month. So that's why I say use the good times to make sure you're identifying these alternative suppliers, because Mm -hmm. when disruptions occur, which you cannot predict, you have to be able to react quicker. And that's going to differentiate how companies can react and what's going to be the impact to their operations.
0: Okay, a lot to unpack in what you just said, those three core factors. Let's back up to number one, develop a risk-based assessment. What does that consist of, though? I mean, what is a risk-based assessment? Is it based on some kind of modeling, computer modeling, the use of AI, talking specifically to suppliers? I mean, how do you work risk into an assessment process that wasn't being done before? It's a
1: great question, Rob. I think the core start point here is, You have to make sure that you're covering off on all basis of risk. So there's credit risk and financial risk. There's compliance risk. There's cyber risk. There's geopolitical risk. There's understanding how operationally the companies are, what their manufacturing sites look like. Can their factories support the demand that you're going to create? Are you the largest consumer of the goods or raw materials and if so do you make up an overwhelming majority of their revenue these are red Mm -hmm. flags that together can create a risk profile of a supplier and then as these risk components change dependent on weightings that a company places on each of these risks can determine whether or not a company should continue to do business with the supplier or if they should shift to a different supplier or at Mm -hmm. the very least Ask more questions. So that's really what we're focused on with clients, on making sure that they're having a true understanding of a risk-based assessment approach.
0: One would expect that the Great Recession would have taught companies the need to assess financial risk and supplier stability because of the loss of thousands of suppliers in the wake of that economic dip. Maybe not. Maybe you're telling me that companies didn't learn that. But that aspect of risk seems to be really at the forefront. What is less there, however, is the risk that comes of the geographical nature of the supplier in the wake of a disaster or a glitch like this epidemic. Would you say that that less emphasis has been put on that aspect of supplier risk and maybe more recently on financial? Or is just the whole ball of wax something that companies haven't been paying enough attention to?
1: I believe your assessment is correct. I would say if you're looking at the maturity of supplier onboarding, those companies that have strong onboarding processes tend to understand the financial and credit risk better than they Mm -hmm. did maybe a decade ago. Where we're starting to see incremental needs is around screening for compliance, screening for sanctions, screening for FCPA violations understanding whether or not there's adverse media out there about a potential supplier, understanding the cyber risk associated with a given third party. These are the types of things that companies are starting to incorporate into their risk-based process. And it's definitely areas of opportunity for most companies.
0: Now, this assessment of suppliers in multiple tiers sounds great, but it's one of the sticking points, I think, of a lot of global supply chains because a lot of companies basically rely on their Tier 1 suppliers to manage Tier 2, Tier 3, and Tier 4. You you seem to be suggesting that's not good enough, that you can't rely on Tier 1 to assure you of the stability of the other tiers? Are you saying that you need to gain control of the entire supply chain? And if so, that is a really difficult thing to do. Any advice on how to achieve that?
1: It's a really good point. And it's also a very, very difficult thing to do. There's a couple of barriers to doing this well. One is the level of insight and cooperation from your tier one suppliers. And the second is, even if you have that insight, how do you understand whether or not that data was collected in a manner that's consistent with the quality and depth of insight that you need. What Dunham & Bradstreet suggests is that you start with, first and foremost, you identify the critical components of your supply chain that would cause the greatest disruption, and you start there. And you start to go down and understand, and you can start to identify where you have secondary and tertiary tiers of suppliers and where there may be risks so that we can narrow the scope of where companies have to start looking. Because Mm -hmm. if you start with a blank slate, it becomes, to your point, Bob, a very overwhelming task.
0: Do you think that the recent emphasis on human rights in global supply chains, and I'm talking specifically about things like conflict minerals, the use of child labor in cotton fields in Uzbekistan and the like, do you think that has obviously forced companies to take a look deep into their supply chain, all the way back to raw materials, to the mine, to the farm, to the smelter. Do you think that could also serve the secondary benefit of having them realize the visibility of their supply chain for other reasons, such as this, such as risk, such as supplier geography, such as disease outbreak? Might that be waking them up to the larger picture as a result of human rights focus?
1: Yes. I think that that is a absolute benefit of being able to do sub-tier analysis. You mentioned a few, I'll mention a few others. We've been working with clients that have historically had contamination that has impacted consumers of food. And so you have to be able to understand how you can trace things from the farm and the lot on the farm all the way back to where they're coming off the shelves and who's buying them. So, yes, there are secondary and tertiary benefits of having a stronger understanding of the critical components of your supply chain.
0: It's often said that companies are always preparing for the last disaster. So they prepare for a tsunami and they get a volcano. They prepare for a volcano, they get floods, you know, and the like. However, with the SARS outbreak, that was another disease outbreak like this one. How come that didn't provide the necessary lessons to help us deal with the coronavirus?
1: I think the biggest reason that we didn't see a sense of urgency that we're seeing today is because, quite honestly, when the SARS outbreak occurred, China did not make up a significant portion of global GDP, and you didn't have the significant dependence on China that you see today in 2020. Mm -hmm. Additionally, within, I think, less than a few weeks after the current outbreak of the coronavirus, it quickly surpassed SARS in terms of numbers infected and number of deaths. So you are seeing both a bigger economic impact by China, as well as a larger impact by the virus itself.
0: I can see that. So has this discussion, the coronavirus outbreak, is it causing the discussion to move higher up the executive ladder into the executive suite? In other words, going forward, who within the company should be responsible for carrying out these basic tasks and disciplines that you're suggesting? Should it be the procurement professional? Should it be a supply chain title? Should it be someone who is tasked specifically with risk management? Where in the company should this be happening?
1: I'm going to say yes to that answer. <laughs> and, the, and the short answer is, Bob, everyone. Everyone sitting in a C-suite today should be asking these questions for one very simple reason. Mm-hmm. If it impacts revenue and it's driven by risk, then I don't know a single person in a single C-suite office that isn't impacted by this and doesn't have either risk or revenue in their goals.
0: So not centered in one individual, but something that cuts across so-called organizational silos and is the business of the entire company.
1: Absolutely. I can tell you that the types of clients that we've been engaged with over the last several weeks range from risk owners, global sourcing and procurement, finance, CFO, as well as an inclusive of CEOs.
0: Well, Brian, the things that you're suggesting here are not easy to accomplish, but they certainly are essential. And it's great that they come to light in this new Dun & Bradstreet report on the impact of the coronavirus now and going forward. So, Brian Alistair, always great to have you on the show. We will link in our show notes to this episode to this report and look forward to speaking to you again in future. But in the meantime, thanks very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. I look forward to talking again.
0: That was my conversation with Brian Alster of Dunn & Bradstreet, talking about the impact of the coronavirus on global supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.